You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number four, the writer. In one of the unmarked boxes from my parents' house, I found a cast photo. The handwriting on the back tells me it's from Turn It Up, a stage review which played at Unity Theatre in Islington in the early 1950s. There's my dad standing in the front row in costume wearing a false moustache. The set designer, my mum, cowers in the back row, always quite camera shy. And at the front, dead centre, stands the writer of the show, his enormous grin telling the world, I did this! You can't miss him. I'm sure I'm not alone in getting a slight shiver when first encountering an old family photo. Perhaps it's the sensation of seeing familiar people in unfamiliar situations, frozen in time decades before. This one is a professionally taken pin-sharp group shot that tells me how, even though it was an amateur setup, Unity Theatre approached everything with the dedication and skill of a major repertory company. Founded in 1936, Unity is something of a footnote in the history of modern performance. Long before the days of political fringe theatre, it was introducing new radical writers to London audiences, many now regarded on a par with Ibsen or Chekhov. It's thanks to Unity that British theatre-goers first discovered the plays of Bertolt Brecht, Sean O'Casey, Jean-Paul Sartre, Clifford Odets, the list goes on. Then there are the actors, among them Bill Owen, Bob Hoskins, Warren Mitchell, most of the future cast of Emergency Ward 10, Even Paul Robeson played there for a season. Not bad for a shabby left-wing theatre under constant special branch surveillance. Turn It Up was typical of the satirical reviews produced by Unity. And as usual, it came in for a lot of internal flack from the more hardline politicos in the company, all of whom thought theatre existed primarily to extol the virtues of Marxist-Leninism but the ticket sales for such light-hearted fare said otherwise, proving that the Noel Coward tendency will always trump the militant tendency when it comes to bums on seats. It was at Unity that my parents got together. By this time, my father was in his twenties, out of uniform, and continuing with his studies at Chelsea Polytechnic. Because of the war and its effect on the education system, Mum finished school in 1943, aged 13, and immediately started as a scholarship art student at St Martin's College, thrown into a bohemian demimonde fully deserving its own chapter elsewhere. She joined Unity because she wanted to act, but on discovering that she was a trained artist, they instead put her to work painting sets and backdrops. A little later, she brought along an eccentric friend and fellow St Martin's alumnus to help out. The fellow in the photo with the enormous grin. This big mouth soon made the change from paint pot to typewriter when he impressed the company with his songs and sketches. Turn It Up was his first full show. He later moved on to Joan Littlewood's company at Stratford East and found yet more success as a jobbing songwriter. First for Billy Cotton, before hitting it big with Tommy Steele in 1956. It was around this time that my parents, now married with two kids, had him over for dinner. 
He wanted mum and dad to hear some of his new stage material, having lugged a reel-to-reel tape recorder to their tiny flat in Stoke Newington. Over coffee, dad offered some constructive criticism and suggested a few changes. And after more discussion, the writer said to dad, Paul, you're full of bright ideas. How about you and me write a show together? My dad thought about it for a moment. He now had a young family to support and a steady day job as a biochemist. Us, write a show together, he said. Do me a favour. And that, gentle listener, is how my father passed up the opportunity to collaborate on a stage musical with Lionel Bart. In time, this exchange between Dad and Lionel achieved something of a life of its own as a kind of family in-joke. My parents would always say, do me a favour, to each other, as well as their three sons, if it looked as if we were about to turn down the chance to do anything creative, lucrative, or simply for the fun of it. And over the years, this backhanded entreaty to Carpa Diem worked well for my brothers and me. As is now common knowledge, the career of Lionel Bart became a byword for showbiz success before descending into a morass of showbiz excess. For a while he had the Midas touch, writing number ones and creating hit musicals, most notably Oliver, before hitting the buffers with a catastrophic flop called Twang. Within a few years he was bankrupt, alcoholic and Britain's oldest acid casualty. But Oliver remains a classic with regular major revivals. It was for one such revival in 1994 that my actor friend Ollie went to audition. For some reason, he didn't want to sing a number from any familiar show as his audition piece, choosing instead a song I'd written a few years earlier, a satire on East End gentrification sung by a yuppie Ariviste affecting to be a Cockney geezer. In other words, a thumbs in lapels, have a banana skit in the style of Lionel Bart. Ollie's audition was politely received and a neutral voice told him he had made it to the next round. Then another older voice called out from somewhere in the darkened auditorium. What was that song? It's called Riff Raff, said Ollie. Who wrote it? Matthew Diamond. Matthew Diamond? Never heard of him. Cameron McIntosh had drafted Lionel in as a production consultant to do some rewrites on Oliver and sit in on auditions and rehearsals in exchange for a decent fee and a share of the gross. This worked well for everyone, including Lionel, who long after selling the rights to stave off bankruptcy, hadn't received a royalty from the show for decades. He was still an occasional visitor, Shea Diamond, through the 1960s, so I could reasonably counter that he had heard of me. The last time I saw Lionel was when my mother sold him a bronze statue of Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame. He was rewriting and revising a musical based on Victor Hugo's masterwork, naturally entitled Hunch, hoping it would restore the creative mojo he lost after the disaster of Twang. The statue sat in his office as inspiration, but despite many attempts, Hunch remained unperformed in public until 2013, over a decade after his death. From a distance, 
My father's rejection sometimes looks like a sliding doors moment that robbed me of a childhood spent hanging out with the Beatles, or at the very least babysat by Alma Cogan. But I am also aware from experience that most artistic collaborations come to nothing and history only records the successes. If he had written a musical with Lionel, my dad might have seen his name in lights on Broadway. So do I still think he was wrong to take up Lionel's offer? Do me a favour. That was The Writer, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe and like on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time.